Well, thank you for the introduction there, Brother Ken, and I think Scott as well, and uh, my privilege to be with you all. Now you can say that. Uh, And we're going to hold those high fives because I know this is maybe officially the five-year anniversary of this campus, but next weekend, the team here has something very special planned to celebrate five years of Bethel Gary. So, uh, you know, it was six years ago that, probably almost six years ago, that uh, me and a team of people were scouting out how could God give the opportunity to Bethel Church to have a presence here in the city of Gary. About six years ago was the first time we kind of walked this building, actually. And it was, as you all know, like a boys and girls club. We were in the middle right now of what was a cafeteria, and it was ugly red and bright yellow. And I remember this building so well, the first time we walked through it. And just the work that God has done here has been remarkable. Uh, So much of that is the tribute to all of you and your kingdom-hearted commitment to build this location and build this gospel outpost in the city of Gary. Our staff team, I couldn't be more delighted with, with uh, Angie Briggs and Chris Farrell here and Leanne and Katrina, of course, Pastor Dexter, Ken Berry, the team who serves here so faithfully and with distinction. Uh, God is using all of them and all of our leaders here to, I think, do hopefully, a, I know, a great work and I trust it's a great work in your life. And so it's a real privilege for me to be here to be able to open God's word as this is a location that's very dear to my heart uh, of Bethel Church. Uh, since I was very much involved in the establishment of the very beginning, and uh, the stories of life change that have come through here have been remarkable. And uh, even just to see the flourishing of the City Life Center and hundreds of kids coming through this building every week and uh, a waiting list, and the opportunities are endless for us. And I believe God is certainly not done with the work here, is he? And uh, there's some exciting, exciting days ahead. So, Dexter, uh, as you know, he's out of town, and uh, I was the, the backup here to come in and open God's Word, and so I said to Dexter, I said, you yeah, know, what do you want me to preach on here? I've got, honestly, just a bunch of messages I've delivered elsewhere, and uh, so I said, you know, I got, here, here's some subjects I could preach on. I gave him some, some subtopical messages that all kind of dealt with some tricky theological issues, like why do the righteous suffer, or why is there evil in the world, or how do I pray for people who are uh, in opposition against me, and such, and so he picked the subject here today, and so if you don't like the subject, you can blame Pastor Dexter, all right? <laughs> and if you don't like the delivery, because it's lacking a little zest in what you used to, you can blame me, because I'm white, all right? So... <laughs> I can assure you I'm not going to sweat, all right, like Dexter does. I don't even have a cloth up here. I don't need it. But, so it might seem a little different, different uh, on that level. But I'll do my best to connect with you here by addressing what is, I think, a, a, a significant theological question. It's a question that perhaps all of us have wondered about at some time. Uh, it's sometimes a question that is a stumbling block to people believing in God. It's a question that sometimes causes people to doubt God's existence, and it influences people as they wrestle with this question to perhaps embrace an atheism or even an agnosticism. And here's the question. The question is, why can't I visibly see God? I mean, if God is real, and if he exists, why doesn't he just plainly and visibly reveal himself to us? If God really exists, why is he not visibly on display for all the world to see? I mean, it just makes sense that God would visibly show himself, doesn't it? If I was God, I would certainly reveal myself to the world by simply appearing in the sky or by thundering my voice out over the world. I'd show up to direct human history away from wickedness, and I would appear to make sure that I would bless my people who were righteous. And it just makes sense, doesn't it, that, that God should do this? Yet God's not doing this. We can't look up and just 
clearly, visibly see God in the sky. We don't hear his audible voice just booming out, speaking to mankind. We don't even see supernatural miracles occurring that are happening by his hand, like that we see all throughout the Old Testament, particularly like the parting of the Red Sea or... Suppose an airplane is crashing. You know, God could just gently catch that airplane in his hand and, and lower it to the ground. Yet he doesn't reveal himself in that way. Why doesn't he visibly show himself? Theologians call this the invisibility of God. That God is real and he is very much present, but he is, pres- but he is invisible to our eyes. He is hidden. He is unseen. And we know that God is visibly hidden and unseen by his own choice. Clearly, God could very plainly reveal himself to us if he chose to, but he chooses not to. Why? Answering this question, we must first realize that throughout history, God has often, of course, chosen to reveal himself to his people in various ways, and this has been much more visible in the past. So, you know, Adam and Eve, God was very visibly present to them in the garden. They had back-and-forth conversations with God, or with Abraham and Jacob, God visibly and audibly presented himself to them. To Moses, God appeared in a burning bush and on the top of Mount Sinai. Later, Exodus records this passage that says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. God was very visibly present to Moses or the entire nation of Israel. Think of all the ways that God showed himself to the nation of Israel in remarkable ways, all the plagues he brought on Egypt. Again, the parting of the Red Sea. One example is Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. To the leaders of Israel, God showed himself to a group of, of leaders. Look at this passage from Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. God reveals himself to people, sometimes in dramatic ways. The prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had multiple visions of God. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And of course, God most fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. It's Colossians 1, 15, for example. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was the perfect manifestation of God who appeared and walked amongst his people. He talked with them. He ate with them. He felt pain with them. God in the flesh plainly revealed for all to see. And in some ways, God has visibly and plainly revealed himself to mankind. And God is not finished revealing himself in this way. Jesus Jesus will undeniably be visible in the future. He is the most visible representation of God that we will someday see. Consider Revelation 22 that says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on on their foreheads. Or 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what they will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so this period of time when God is hidden, it is temporary. There will be a time in the future when God will reveal himself most prominently through Christ, and we will see him in absolute unparalleled clarity. He will be undeniable, undeniable, visibly and audibly seen by all. That day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because the full revelation of God will be undeniable. As undeniable as the sun is in the sky or the sound of booming thunder in a massive storm. But at this point in time, God is hidden. Why? 
I mean, wouldn't it just greatly strengthen all of our faith if we could just look up in the sky and see him? Imagine if Jesus was just orbited through the sky like, like the sun. Like we didn't need the sun anymore. We just had Jesus and his glory light just orbiting over the sky. We could look up, see in there whenever we wanted. If that was the case, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we design our worship auditoriums with huge skylights. We'd kind of know the schedule and be like, 11.05, he's going to appear right there. Okay, ready? And like, we'd be ready. And we'd plan our worship services over Jesus' orbit. We could just look up there and see him singing our praise to him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that make our faith so much stronger, so much richer, so much easier? But because God is presently unseen, this seems to put our faith at a disadvantage. It might cause us to doubt. And I ask, wouldn't God want his people to have the strongest faith possible? So I have one big overarching answer to this question, followed by two more specific answers. So there's one big summary truth, followed by um, two more specific truths that flow out of this summary one that hopefully, to a large degree, not completely, but to a large degree, will help us answer this question today. So first, the first big overarching answer, why is God visibly unseen? We need to remember that whenever we answer, ask questions like this, there is one ultimate value or one ultimate motivator behind everything God does. So whenever we say, God, why, why have you done this? Or why are you doing this? Or why are you like that? Why did God create mankind? Why does God... You know, permit evil to exist? Why has God given us his word? Why does he expect obedience? Why, does he, why is he presently visual, visually unseen to us? All of these why questions, they all have the same primary answer. And that is that God does everything for his own glory. So God's glory is the ultimate motivator behind everything that he does. Take, for example, Ezekiel 36, 22 that says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It is for the sake of my holy name. Ezekiel 36, do you see that? Therefore, say the house of Israel, it is not for your sake, O Israel, I'm about to act. It is for the sake of my holy name. Here's the context of this verse. God is promising to bring about the restoration of Israel. They are in exile. They are suffering. They're far from him. And God describes in Ezekiel 36 how he's going to restore them to himself, how he's going to bring those people back to himself. But here in verse 32, God is saying, this incredible restorative work I'm going to do in you, I'm doing it first and foremost for myself. I'm doing it ultimately for my own glory and for my fame. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It is for the sake of my holy name. It's for my sake. It's for the sake of my holy name. It's for the sake of my reputation amongst the nations. It is for my own sake that I do this, says the Lord. It is not for your sake, O Israel. It's not for your prosperity. It's not for your comfort I'm about to act. It's not for your happiness that I'm going to restore you. I am ultimately doing this for my sake, for the sake of my name. God's supreme concern we see here is for his glory. His supreme concern is for his glory. That's a point you can put up on the screen. And we need to ask, whenever, whenever we have this question, why would God do this? God always asks, acts first and foremost for his glory. God's supreme concern is for his glory. He restores a wayward people to himself, not for their sake, but for the sake of his glory. Here's another example, Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. 
For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God acts first and foremost for his own glory. Now, it's not popular to have a view like this today. Society commonly thinks that God is nothing more than a big fuzzball of love. And that God blesses us first and foremost for our own benefit. That he helps us because he loves us. Because his love for us, it compels him to want to bless us. And this is certainly true. God's motivation is a massive, huge, glorious motivation behind what God does. God, God has incredible love for his people. But his love is not his only motivation. His love is not even his ultimate motivation. Because passages here clearly teach that God is ultimately motivated not by love, but by a zealous concern for his glory. You see, must, God must be supremely devoted to his glory and to his fame. He must be devoted to his own reputation, honor, and acknowledgement above all else. It is simply right that he do so because he must be supremely devoted to the greatest thing, which is himself. Are you the greatest thing? You may think you are, but you're not. God is not supremely devoted to you. He is devoted to the greatest thing, which is himself. He does love us, but he loves himself even more. And it would be unjust for God to do otherwise. God must love the most lovable thing in the universe. And he must have the most love for the most lovable thing. And is there anything more lovable than God? Of course not. There's nothing more lovable than him. And so he loves himself first and foremost. He would be a hypocrite if he didn't. He would be guilty of injustice if he didn't. God always acts first and foremost for his own glory. And so, when we ask the question, why is God presently unseen? We reason it must be advantageous for God's glory that he'd be unseen for this season of time. Somehow God knows that it will serve his glory if for this period, in redemptive history, he's not visually seen. It serves his glory to be hidden right now. Now that's the big overarching answer to this question, but let me get more specific in helping you consider it. Aside from the fact that God is doing this for his glory, why is God visually unseen in today's world? Why does he hide himself from the world? And here I have two more specific answers to this question. The first is this. God wants his people to have a greater faith. He wants his people to have a greater faith. Now, can we all agree it takes more faith to believe in something that is unseen than to believe in something that is just plainly obvious to everybody? That's the basic definition of faith. To believe in something that is not seen or not presently obvious to everyone. It doesn't take faith to believe that the grass is green. Or it doesn't take faith to believe, take me back, take you back a few years here, it doesn't take faith to believe the Chicago Cubs won the World Series a few years ago. Some people want the Bears, the Vikings, the Packers to win this year. Okay, I get that. We'll see. You all have faith about that, right? But going back a couple years, doesn't take faith to believe the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. They did that. But it certainly took faith to believe that the Chicago Cubs would win the World Series before they had done so, especially after 100 plus years of failure. Before they were revealed as world champions, faith was required to think, yes, the Chicago Cubs can do this. But then after they were revealed as such, faith was no longer necessary. It became just a basic fact. And so faith is by definition believing in something that is unseen or unproven. 
Here's how the Bible defines faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is believing in something that we cannot see or believing in something that is not obvious to everyone. Another definition of faith in 2 Corinthians 4. We look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And here Paul states that a believer's identity is in part tied up in a personal personal confidence in things that are unseen, things that are invisible, things that are not described in the nightly news or in the school textbooks. God clearly wants us to have this kind of faith in him. He wants believers to trust in him while he is yet unseen. And why is that? Because belief in unseen things requires a more significant type of faith which Romans 8 now unpacks for us in saying, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, this passage is extolling the goodness and the greatness of faith, and there is a virtue in choosing to believe in something that is not yet seen or obvious to everyone. There is a glory in that. And there is a certain victory that comes when then you're proven correct. So when you believe that the Cubs would win the World Series and they hadn't yet done that, there was a certain virtue in your faith and your trust in the Cubs. And when the Cubs were revealed to be winners, an explosion of praise and joy came from your patient faith. I was right. I knew it. Finally, the thing I hoped for so long has happened. Or another example, I have great confidence and faith in my wife to do some great things. This summer we took a family vacation. We went all the way to California. And it took a lot of faith in my wife to do so much of the planning and the packing for the trip. She was on it. I knew she could handle it, even though at times she was sometimes very stressed out by it. But you know what? She, she nailed it. She prepared for our trip so very well. And when the fruits of her work were revealed, I celebrated it. And I still do. And it's to her glory that I believed that she could do great things even before she did them. And this is how God is glorified, by requiring faith of his people. He relishes in the faith that people express in him. He delights in the confidence that believers show in him, even though everything is not yet revealed. Peter wrote about this virtue of believing in God while he is still unseen in 1 Peter 1.8 when he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, what? Glory. There's a joy that comes to God's heart when people believe in him before he is fully revealed. Just like the joy that I have in my kids, that I see in my kids' hearts when I express to them faith and confidence and their ability to do something that's not yet proven. When I say, I know you can win that game. I'm confident you're going to pass that test. I'm certain you will do great at your recital. There's a joy that comes to my kids' hearts when I express my faith in them before they've yet done that. And God wants his people to express that kind of faith in him. But in order to do so, it requires requires him to be visually unseen for a time. Until then he is, at some point in the future, visibly uh, revealed. And then that faith that has been expressed over a lifetime is joyfully consummated. 
And God's people celebrate and say, see, the thing that we had hoped for, that we believed in is true. But that time's not yet coming. It's not yet here. It is coming. And so in, as we wait, God wants his people to have a greater faith. That is the first reason why God is visually unseen. Let me transition to a second. We all know that one of the consequences of God being unseen is that many people disbelieve in him. Many people disbelieve in God's existence because they can't visually see him. How many times have you tried to share the gospel with somebody or something like that, and they're like, oh, I just don't believe in God because I just don't see evidence. Many people deny God's existence because they can't visually see him. And this results in a world now populated by two types of people, those who believe in God and those who do not. And God must have a purpose behind this contrast. If God didn't want this contrast to exist, he would just be visibly seen in the sky. Everyone would believe in existence, in his existence. Everyone just, just like believes that the grass is green. If God wanted everybody to believe in him, he'd just show himself. But by being hidden, humanity is divided into those who believe and into those who do not. And God visibly hides himself to make believing or actually disbelieving in God, rationally defensible. People can say, well, I, I don't believe in God because I don't see him. And then they come up with alternative theories to explain reality, like naturalistic evolution. If you say God doesn't exist, how do you explain how we got here? You see, when you disbelieve in God, you still need to answer some basic questions. Where'd we come from? How'd the universe exist? What, what happens when I die? And so by being visually unseen, God has created a world where naturalistic theories of origins and evolution, they become convincing to some people. And some theories, those kind of theories, they become convincing because even of the type of earth that God has created that also allows him to be hidden. You see, most unbelieving, let me go on a tangent here. Most unbelieving scientists think that their earth is millions and millions of years old. And this belief allows... Uh, than to offer alternative theories of origins, like naturalistic evolution. Uh, for those theories to work, the earth needs millions and millions of years to, for those processes to work out. Now, based on the testimony of God's word, we would strongly teach against a belief that mankind evolved from apes, that life had just a, a very gradual process of origins completely on its own, independent of, of a divine orchestration, but... Christians often vehemently debate the age of the earth. Some think it's millions and millions of years old, as scientists claim. Others think it's very young, perhaps just 8,000 years or so. But most agree that it at least has the appearance of age. When you look at it, it seems like the earth has been around a while. And I'm not going to dig into the sticky matter in regards to, is the earth genuinely very old or is it very young? I'll let Pastor Dexter handle that sometime. That's the, that's the privilege of being a guest uh, teacher here today. But... Most everybody agrees the earth at least has the appearance of looking on the surface to be very old. And perhaps God created it with the appearance of age. Perhaps the earth really is very old. Perhaps some activity happened in the, in the history of the world that created the appearance of age. In either case, the appearance of the earth allows God to be hidden. Because if we could prove that the earth was just 8,000 years old, then that would be almost undeniable proof in the exist of the existence of God. Because how else could you explain how we got here? How else could you explain the diversity and the complexity of life? Naturalist, naturalistic evolution requires millions and millions of years to work, but if Earth was proven to just be 8,000 years old, all secular explanations for the origin of life are destroyed, and it becomes no longer rational to say that God doesn't exist. So God hides himself by creating a world where it is possible for some to disbelieve in him. 
And this enables the world to have this great contrast of those who believe and those who do not. And why would God do this? It's not just so that his people have a certain type of faith. There's another reason. And this is the second reason why God remains presently unseen. God is showing how terrible life is without him. He is showing the world how terrible life is without him. When a large portion of the world disbelieves in God because they cannot see him, the world drifts away from God. People go off and they live life on their own, and that's the general condition of the world today. And I think we can all agree that it's not going well. The world is full of pain. It's full of suffering. Sin runs rampant in the world as people harm each other and they injure each other. They cause pain towards one another. And this is what happens in a godless reality. Sin takes over because that's our basic nature. And when sin takes over, pain and suffering result. Consider how Paul describes this reality in Romans 1 when he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they did not see fit to acknowledge that God exists, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen to this. They do not know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This passage describes the incredible pain that comes when people deny God and fail to acknowledge him because they do not see fit to acknowledge God. Because they denied the existence of God, God said, okay, you're not going to acknowledge me? Then go ahead and feel the consequences of a wicked life apart from me. And the text describes in all sorts of suffering that comes to people as they engage in sin. They experience murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They do evil. They suffer for it. They injure each other through gossip and slander and foolishness, ruthless actions. And why does this happen? All because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So God is visibly unseen. When God is visibly unseen, people deny him, and then they face the consequences of sin and despair of a life lived apart from God. And as this happens, you know what it does? It shows our need for a Savior. You see, God is visually unseen so that we see how terrible life is without him. So that ultimately then we turn to him and we say, we need you. Rescue us from this world that denies you. God permits this contrast to exist in this world so that people realize their need to God and that they willfully turn to him because all of this greatly glorifies him. Now, I know this seems complicated, so let me illustrate it in this way. Consider this story. There once was a father who had four beautiful children. Due to unusual circumstances, no one expected this father found himself raising his four children on his own. He was a kind and generous man who deeply loved his children, and all who knew him saw the obvious affection he had for his kids. Yet he was a firm parent. He taught his children well. He expected obedience, and they wonderfully behaved, in part because of the tremendous respect they had for their dad. He was also a man of great wealth. 
through his abundant means. He provided a luxurious lifestyle for his children. They lived in large modern estate, far off in the countryside. Acres and acres of land were at their disposal for riding horses or playing in the woods. The father provided for their every need. They were abundantly well-fed. They had private tutors to help them learn. He often took them on lavish vacations to see the grandeur of the world. And he was a doting father who began every day cooking a special breakfast for his family and ended every day tucking his four children into bed one by one. As they entered their teenage years, you would think they would have grown to resist this ritual, but the children cherished their father, and they always delighted to be under his care. Yet one day, the father decided that his children needed to gain some important perspective. You see, they had never been in want. They had quite unwittingly come to take for granted all the father's care over them. So one night, after the children were all tucked into bed and fast asleep, the father quietly snuck up into the attic. And there he reigned, waiting to see what would happen. As the sun rose, the children stirred and rustled in their beds. As they awoke, they immediately knew something was awry. The usual smell of coffee, along with bacon or eggs or pancakes, was nowhere to be found. Nor were the sounds of their father whistling in the kitchen as he prepared their morning meal. The house was eerily silent. It seemed dead. They cautiously tiptoed, down, tiptoed downstairs together. They looked around, wondering where their father had gone. They searched high and low, looking in every room for their dad, but it never occurred to them to look into the attic. After an exhaustive search, the older two decided to take things into their own hands. They attempted to cook up the usual breakfast, but it was a disaster. For a moment, they were dismayed. They missed the blessings that their father provided them. But then it dawned on them. They were in the home alone. They could do whatever they wanted. Almost immediately, their apprehension wore off, and the house turned into a party. They made great messes. They watched whatever they wanted. They played whatever games they wanted. They ate junk food all day, laughing and having the time of their lives. All the while, the father waited patiently in the attic. But soon the fun began to wear off. Without their father's firm guidance, the children began to bicker and fight. They started to yell and scream. They treated one another with unkindness and deceit. At moments they got along fine, but other times they were at each other's throats. As dinner drew near, they all seemed to tire of ice cream and chocolate. They wanted something more, but they lacked the wisdom to cook for themselves. Hearing their complaints from the attic, the father turned on his phone and quietly ordered pizza delivery, all with the kids' favorite toppings. When the pizza arrived, the delivery person explained that it was paid for by an anonymous donor. The children wondered for a moment who that could be, but in their hunger, they quickly devoured the pizza without a second thought. They did whatever seemed fun to them, deep into the night, experiencing great frivolity, intermeshed with conflict and strife. But as their eyelids grew heavy, genuine tears of sadness emerged. They were exhausted, and they had no one to tuck them in. Eventually, they collapsed into their beds without even thinking to brush their teeth. When they were all fast asleep, the father snuck down from the attic. He tidied up some things that he knew they would never notice. He restocked the refrigerator with fresh milk, and he quietly snuck into each of their rooms, kissed them all on the forehead goodnight, and then he returned to his hidden spot in the attic. The next morning, the children are woes, and their father was again nowhere to be found. But the joy and wonder of the previous day had worn off. 
Now they were fearful of another day trying to fend for themselves. They knew there would be much fighting and pain as they lacked the father's wise temperance to keep their behavior in line. At night, the pizza came again. And again, they put themselves to bed. This time, a deep sense of sadness and despair washed over them. Where was their father? For three more days, the cycle repeated. The home became a miserable place to live. It was a complete disaster. The house was a wreck. No one got along. They all tired of pizza and cereal. And the freedom that they once enjoyed had become heavy weight. Eventually, the father had to do it enough. In the midday hour, while the children sat like zombies in front of the TV, he snuck down from the attic. And he came up quietly behind them. Here I am, he said tenderly. The children turned around. Their faces initially displayed shock and fear, but then almost as quickly, as, almost as quickly turned to shouts of joy and admiration. In an instant, they rose to their feet and rushed to their father. They wrapped themselves around him. He embraced them all with his long, strong arms. Tears of joy combined with a myriad of questions filled the air. When the initial shock had settled down, finally the father could ask, answer the most pressing question. Where did you go? Nowhere, the father replied. I was right here with you the entire time, only unseen in the attic. Tell me, where did you think I had gone? We had no idea. You just vanished without a trace, the children answered. Really, the father said. Did you notice that the house was tidied up every night as you slept? Or how the fridge was stocked with fresh milk every morning? Or that the pizza miraculously appeared every night, each time with your favorite toppings? I never left you, but I wanted you to learn how much having a father means to you. And I wanted you to see how very much you needed my care. And now that I have appeared, I know that you will never forget this lesson. For the rest of your lives, you will always remember the few days when I was hiding in the attic. And that memory of my absence will cause you to appreciate my abundant blessings all the more. End of story. Now, do you get the point? This is a difficult, painful season of redemptive history we're all in. And God is visually unseen now for a time to demonstrate how terrible this world is without him and that this world needs a savior. He is hidden for a time so that people understand what life is like apart from him. And then they cry out to him for help. And he reaches down and draws near to them and saves them, and he receives incredible glory and joy when this happened. But be encouraged. This period of time when God is unseen is only temporary. Imagine the incredible outpouring of praise in the future when God is finally revealed visibly, undeniably for all to see. Imagine the worship that will ensue from God's people at that time. It will be many, many, many times greater than the excitement we saw from those Fans, when the Cubs won the World Series, all God's people will declare, finally, the things we have hoped for are here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And imagine the glory that God will receive in that moment. And finally, although this season that we endure right now is difficult, it is equipping us for an eternity of worship. You see, one thing that will fuel our worship for all of eternity will be the memories of a fallen and broken world so that when we see God visibly in the new heavens and the new earth, we will remember how bad things were here when God was not visibly seen. And we'll remember what life was like in a godless world that chased after sin. We'll remember how terrible life was in a world that did not see God. But that will help us see more clearly how beautiful and how wonderful life is with him. And the bitterness of this life will help us appreciate the glories of the next life to come all the more. And that will fuel our worship for eternity. Thus giving God tremendous glory. So two specific reasons why God is presently visibly unseen. He wants his people to have a greater faith, and he is showing how terrible life is without him, all of which is purposed to bring great glory and honor to himself. Now, I could end the sermon here, but Dexter told me he preaches for two hours. So I do have just a few other things I want to help us with. And helping you understand, God is on display. He is. I've been careful in this sermon to say that, you know, God himself is presently unseen. Because although God is not visibly seen by everyone in this world, the fingerprints of God are everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see impressions and signs of God, although he is visibly hidden, manifestations of his glory and person are on display all throughout creation. The visible glories of the unseen God are all around us. And though we do not see God directly, we have ample ways to see him indirectly, or to say it this way, although God is not visibly seen, his glory is easily seen by those who have faith to see it. Although God is not visibly seen, his glory is easily seen by those who have faith to see it. It's been famously said that you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. We don't see God himself visibly, but we see his working everywhere we look. God has given us an incredible revelation of himself, all of which which should make it abundantly clear that God is real and that we can believe and trust in him. So let me share with you three ways in which he shows himself to mankind. Three ways that God's glory can be visibly seen. The first is in the pages of scripture. God has revealed himself through the specific revelation of the Bible. The Bible talks at length about who God is and what he has done. It affirms his existence on every page, in every paragraph. And God has spoken through this book. And as you read it, as you study it, as you apply it to your life, you realize just how remarkable this book, must, this book is. It must truly be of divine origin. It has clarity and unity and depth that is beyond a simple ability of mankind to produce. And these pages, they contain the accounts of Christ himself, who was the most clear and full revelation of God to date. And you just read the Gospels and the life of Christ, and you see God fully on display in the pages of this book. The glories of God are clearly seen in the pages of Scripture. And the glories of God are also clearly seen in the wonders of creation. The wonder of creation. Consider Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Even though God himself is presently unseen, creation itself declares that God exists, that he is real. Just look out at our world and you must conclude that God truly does exist. The analogy is often given of a watch. Imagine if you were just one day walking down the street and you looked down on the path, the sidewalk you were on, and there you saw a watch. Now, you would naturally reason that this watch was created by somebody and left there by somebody. It just didn't pop into existence on its own or somehow morph out of the concrete. This would be especially true if you examined the intricate parts and gears that form it. You, just would, you wouldn't think it just popped out of nowhere. That somehow it just formed on its own. You'd reason that the watch itself testifies that somewhere there must be a watch creator. And even though you don't see the creator, you know he exists. Because there's no other way to explain the existence of the watch. And as you study the watch, you reason that this creator is, has great intelligence, incredible skill. He must have acted very intentionally to put this watch together. It was very carefully and intelligently designed. There's no other way to explain the watch's existence. And friends, when you examine the created world, from the intricacies of the human body to the incredible balance and symmetry of nature itself, from the amazing precision with which the microscopic world functions to the greatness, to the vastness of the universe itself, creation testifies, it screams that there is a designer and a creator of it all. So let me illustrate. Let's look at an image here. Let's put an image up. This is the image of a watch. Now just look at this image. Does this seem created or accidental? You look at this, it's clearly is created, isn't it? Well, what about this? Next image. Here's a car. Does that seem like that was created by someone or accidental? It was clearly created. How about this? Eiffel Tower, created or accidental? It's created. How about this? Another image. Whoop, there was a space station, and there's the space station, created or, accident, or accidental. It's clearly created. The next image, uh, this is the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. Now, did that just kind of happen on its own, or was it created in a large effort by smart people? It was clearly created. Now, apply the same logic that you used when you examined those previous images, and now look at this image. Is that created or accidental? Apply the same logic that you used with all the other images. Okay, what about this? That's an abstract art painting. Is it created or accidental? Clearly created. Well, how is that different from this? Next image. The surface of Jupiter. Created or accidental? What about this? Next image. Fiber optics. Clearly seems like that's been created intentionally. How is that different from this? Next image. Close-up of a feather. Here's another image. This one of a microchip. We look at a microchip, we say that must clearly be created. But how is that different than this? Next image. That's a snowflake. Okay, another image. We have here just a row of houses. Clearly, lots of creation going on there. How is that different than this? Next image. That's a close-up of broccoli. Created or accidental? Here's another image. That's a fractal. It's a mathematic equation generated by a computer. Is that that's clearly created. How is that different than this? Iris of a human eye. How about this one? It's a robot. Clearly created. How is that different than this? Oh, 
That's my daughter when she was probably one and a half or something like that. You see, applying the same logic to all these images would lead you to the same conclusions. All of these were carefully and wonderfully designed, intentionally made by a creator. And if mankind in all of our incredible efforts at best can create a clumsy robot, imagine how much greater the creator of this universe is. To create a human body like yours or like mine with all the intricacies and the immense capabilities, the staggering complexity of the human body that demonstrates incredible, unfathomable creative power. And truly, I think you just need to look at an image like this. Next image. Or an image like this. You just think about our world. Or an image like this. Or this. Or an image like this. To, to conclude that there's a creator behind all of this. The heavens declare the glory of God. Indeed, they do. And all of creation testifies to God's existence. From the depths of the Grand Canyon to the fragility of a snowflake. From the immense diversity of life that you see to the incredible complexity of the human body, the basic structure of DNA to the beauty of music and of color and a sunset. Creation screams truth about God even though we can't presently see him visually. So don't buy into theories that supposedly explain life without God. Don't allow scientific theories that are sometimes dishonest or biased with how they do with the evidence to sow seeds of doubt in your soul, just use your common sense. What seems more reasonable? That the watch just popped into existence on its own? Or that an intelligent, very powerful, immensely creative creator made it? What has the greater body of evidence to support its claims? That creation, all of its diversity, complexity, and beauty just happened accidentally? Or that it's all handiwork? of a powerful, wise, immensely creative, intelligent God who, for good reason, happens to be visually unseen right now for a time. So the glories of God, they're on display through the plages of Scripture, through the wonders of creation. Both of these provide incredible manifestations of his glory, but here's the final category that is also very compelling in the testimony of changed lives. The testimony of changed lives. God is on display not just in scripture and in creation, but in the life of everybody who believes in him. God's active work in this world is presently seen not through pillars of fire, not through voices from heaven, not through visible appearances in the sky. His active work is most clearly seen right here in the community of believers, right here in the human heart as lives are touched and changed by his impact, as people find hope amid the suffering of life, as God blesses his people with the comfort and the joy that the Holy Spirit provides, as God helps his people to grow and to become more like Jesus. And so do you want to see evidence of God? Just look at the glorious work that he does in the lives of his people, in the, life, in the work that he does and can do in your life. And you will often see things that do not defy explanation and point clearly to the working of an unseen God. So although while God is 
presently visually unseen, he provides ample displays of his glory for all to see. In the pages of scripture, in the, in the wonders of creation, and in the testimony of changed lives. These are the visible glories of the unseen God. And of course, someday God will no longer be hidden. There will be a time when he will be fully revealed. And at that time, there will be doubters of his existence no longer. All people will someday see Jesus as he's pictured here in this, pa in this passage. Let me read Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Someday, if your faith is in Christ, we will see Jesus like that. In the, mean <laughs> in the meantime, we wait patiently, don't we? With a faith that confidently believes in things that are not yet seen. <laughs> Sister's joy there is great. And we preserve with a heart, waiting for the day for him to appear and come quickly. That we all might relish in the incredible joy of seeing God visually in all of his glory. So that he might be forever praised and receive the incredible glory that he's due from his people for all time.